0: Welcome to the Wildly Rooted Podcast. I'm your host, Shana Painter, integrative nutritionist and founder of Nourished by Shea. I'm on a mission to redefine wellness from obsessive, rigid, and restrictive to balanced, vibrant, and joyful. I'm so honored and grateful you are here. Let's get rooted. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am joined by one of my longest and best friends from all the way back in middle school. We are recording this podcast from the beautiful state of Wyoming, and currently, my friends, it is flurrying, and it is just absolutely breathtaking. I've never been in a more beautiful state, which is so hard to say because I probably live in the most beautiful place on the planet. Um, I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode as it contains a breadth of knowledge on the natural world and the interconnectedness that it shares with our human wellness and experience. Today, we are joined by the intelligent and eloquent hydrologist, Joni Gore. She is a scientist for the National Park Service, and for clarity, she is not a spokesperson nor a representative for the National Park Service, and all thoughts, opinions, views expressed and shared on this podcast are entirely of her own. Joni is an experienced whitewater kayaker, a whitewater rafting guide, and an avid hiker. Let's get rooted. Thank you so much, Joni, for being here. I'm so excited to chat with you today. Yeah, me too. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. Please share with our audience your background and how you got started in environmental
1: science. Shana and I met in middle school back in the Bay Area. And while my family didn't do anything outdoorsy, my family sent me to a sleepaway camp in the Sierras every summer. I would go backpacking and camping in the Sierra mountains in California for eight years. And I really fell in love with the outdoors through that avenue. And then when I got to college, I knew that I wanted to do something in environmental sciences enrolled in UC Davis uh, as an environmental science major, and then shortly after switched to hydrology. Hydrology is the study of the water cycle. So you probably remember from like third grade, there's the map (laughs) of like, you know, okay, water evaporates from the ocean and then it fall, you know, clouds move over the land and then precipitate over the ground and then falls as snow, etc. So as hydrologists, you can look at certain parts of that water cycle and understand how it affects the landscape. After I got my degree in hydrology, I had an internship for the National Park Service in the Wild and Scenic Rivers Program. And The Wild and Scenic Rivers Program protects certain designated rivers across the United States that are designated for their natural, cultural, and recreational values. Mm. So for example, the Merced River that flows through Yosemite is a designated river because we want to sustain its free-flowing and natural quality because it's such a you know beautiful resource. Mm-hmm. So I was working with that program for three years, and then I decided that I wanted to go back to grad school, and I got my master's in applied geosciences from the University of Washington. And I specifically focused on fluvial geomorphology, which is quite a mouthful. That is this study of the form and shape of rivers in relation to the rocks and soils around them. Wow, that's so fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty cool and super applicable to the landscape today. After grad school, I was lucky enough to get a job at a national park in My role with the national park. I I do a variety of different monitoring programs. So I monitor air quality, water quality, rivers, and glaciers. During the summer, my job looks like it's 75% in the field and 25% in the office. A typical day in my job, I would go into the office and I would gather all of the gear that we would be using in the field. So that can look like waders. It can look like a depth rod that we would walk in the river with a tool that measure measures velocity in the river. We'd also collect measuring tape and boots and, you know, a notebook and some pens. And then we would go out into the field. And sometimes that looks like 30 minute car ride to a site, but sometimes that means a uh, five mile hike, With 2,000 feet of elevation gain to a field site. (laughs) (laughs) That is no easy feat, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Last summer, I think we banked 60 miles and 50,000 feet of elevation gain. Wow. Over the course of six months. So, yeah, it is a pretty physically taxing job, but I get paid to go hiking and backpacking. And then I go to these sites, collect data, come back to the office, and then process that information. And then we can do a lot with that. So for example, one project is trying to understand how much glaciers contribute to late season snow melt mm-hmm. or like stream temperatures and stream mm-hmm. flow. Mm-hmm. And so by going to the site downstream of a glacier, we can find out multiple times throughout the season, how much the glacier is contributing to that stream. So incredibly fascinating. And I
0: know we had shared this conversation of saying, we really didn't know that this was a field and it was something that <laughs> no. you you had actually learned in freshman orientation at UC Davis in mm-hmm. hearing
1: a hydrologist speak. Exactly. Yeah, I always knew I wanted to do something that was related to the environment. And I think that, you know, came from those experiences in the summertime, spending days in the Sierras backpacking and looking up at the stars. And then when I was in school. During my freshman orientation, I heard this hydrology professor talk about how you can use math to understand natural systems. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So incredible that you were able to stumble
0: into this world, but also to really take it on as something that you can continue to build off of and grow with and learn from. I'm curious, could you speak to the importance of the discipline of hydrology? I'm sure the audience can assume what that importance really looks Mm. like, but I'm curious from your perspective, especially as someone who as well studied and as experienced as you are in this field, what would
1: you say is really that importance of, of this discipline? Well, I see like you have a glass and you're about to reach for your glass of water. It's like, (laughs) I mean, it's important to understand hydrology so that you have drinking water in your home so that you can take a shower, so that you can water your lawn, so that you can grow your food. Indigenous communities have known this for millennia is that water Mm -hmm. is life. Waters are crops. It soothes our soul. It keeps us healthy. And as hydrologists, I think there's kind of this balance of we want to ensure that populations have clean drinking water available to them. But water is also used for industry and it's used for agriculture. And so how do you find that balance of ensuring that the fish have water, but you also have water to Grow your cabbage in California, but also that you have water you know, available on tap whenever you need it. So there's many different ways that hydrologists look at the water cycle, but I think what's going to be most relevant to us is how do we use water every single day.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that, because I think it is, like we had said, not a discipline of science that is very well known or talked about or Mm -hmm. shared about frequently. And so hearing from someone like yourself who works with this system, it's really important for our listeners to kind of connect that back to their understanding of water. And I'm curious, like, since you work so deeply, especially with the rivers and the ecosystems, how does rivers really impact overall ecosystems? And we can talk like at large in terms of, you know, animal life to plant life to human life. Um, but I'm just curious what your, um, kind
1: of view is upon that system. I like to think of rivers as the circulatory system mm. of the earth, you know, Yeah. they start in the mountains or in the highlands. And that's, in, at least in the West Coast, that's where we have snow, and the snow melts, flows into the rivers, and then it flows out to, for us, it flows out to the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And as it flows to out to the Pacific Ocean, it carries nutrients, it carries waste, it carries sediment, and it, it redistributes it through the land. Mm-hmm. And so I think of the Central Valley in California, the reason that it's such a hub for agriculture is because all of these rivers had flown off of the Sierras. They came into the Central Valley and deposited all of these nutrients. Mm. So the Central Valley is an amazing place for agriculture because these rivers were depositing all of this material. Oh, and the, wow. then the water, you know, conti- continued and went out to the ocean. And in some places, the river is a circulatory system in the opposite direction, or it's more of like transit pathway Mm -hmm. because you have salmon that come upstream. They, They are a giant nutrient source that is flowing upstream and bringing this like amazing carbon storage back into the mountains where birds can eat them. There's been studies of the carbon in salmon getting deposited into soil that then gets taken up by redwood trees and trees surrounding the rivers i think it's just so beautiful yeah and so when you look at rivers as this pathway mm-hmm. you know either downstream or upstream for nutrients for water Keep at least right. going downstream like you see how connected it is mm-hmm. and our planet has evolved over millennia when we're thinking of like human lifespans yeah. the earth has evolved around rivers. I love that parallel connection between the circulatory
0: system of the body and like understanding that and applying it to the understanding of the rivers and how they play such an important role in the ecosystems. So fascinating about salmon. I could have never ever known that except for from hearing it from (laughs) you just now. How, in your opinion, is there a parallel between rivers, lakes, just water
1: in general and our human health? I mean, there's always the like and correct me if I'm wrong, but the statistic of like, oh, your body's like 98% water. I think it's around 70
0: to 80%, but okay. yes, very close. That's, but it is a very, it's we a are majority. M- yeah, we yeah. are more
1: microbiology and water than we are human cells. So yeah. yes, there, there's a lot of water there. Some people say like, oh, I'm so affected by the full moon or the new moon. Mm. And, you know, the moon also affects the tides in the ocean. So our bodies contain so much water and we thrive when we have more water. But more importantly, the quality of the water is indicative of our health. Absolutely. Whether that's in our body is like, if we have a bunch of water and we have, we don't have like toxins moving around our system, like we're usually doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And then I think of like, pristine lakes or pristine rivers, especially in the headwater system. So like up in the mountains, like they usually haven't been impacted by agriculture or industry. So sometimes you can drink the water straight from a stream. I still recommend treating it. Like- <laughs> Let's not get giardia. <laughs> yeah. You can, for the most part, filter it. As you go down the watershed, you go closer towards to the ocean for us that's when you start to have these toxins that are introduced to the environment, to our water bodies. Why would you want to pollute something that's sacred, whether that's your body or this landscape?
0: Absolutely, and to clarify toxins, are you talking about things like pesticides,
1: herbicides, even more complex than that? When I'm thinking of agriculture, Mm -hmm. yes, I am thinking of pesticides, and then, in terms of like industry, we can think about heavy metals. We can think about PFAS, which is the material that's in like a lot of nonstick items. Oh, yes. Throw away your nonstick pants, everyone. Yeah. So it, it can be a variety of different things.
0: Yeah, most certainly. And I know most recently there was this very traumatic experience in Ohio of. Um, yeah. a particular substance, vinyl chloride, if I'm not mistaken, that was released into the water system. We don't have to talk too much about that because that's an evolving situation, but you know, it's chemical compounds like that that even can be accidentally released into the water that can then further impact our health on varying degrees, including things like cancers, lymphomas, chronic disease, and various other conditions that can manifest from polluted or toxic water. We know that there's
1: such deep interconnectedness between humans and nature. I am reading this book right now called The Body, A Guide for Occupants by Bill Bryson. There's this section that he talks about immunosuppressive drugs. And I think this relates to how are we and nature connected. In the chapter on the heart and blood, Bryson is talking about these drugs that are specifically used to allow Transplants, So like kidney transplants, kidney. things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll just read you the quote. Then in 1969, an employee of the Swiss pharmaceutical company Sandoz, named H.P. Frey, while on holiday in Norway, collected soil samples to take back to the Sandoz lab. The company had asked employees to do so when traveling in the hope that they would find potential new antibiotics. Frey's sample contained a fungus. I'm just going to refer to it as T. inflatum which had no useful antibiotic properties but proved excellent at suppressing immune responses just the thing needed to make an organ transplant possible Mm. this company specifically asked people when you are traveling will you collect a soil sample and we're going to take whatever fungus or spores are in that soil sample and we will build on it and see what it can what kind of medicine we can get from it it just took this guy traveling to Norway for us to create the drug that allows us to have organ transplants. Wow, and and have them be successful. And have them be successful, that's yeah. And, and allow our body to handle, you know, somebody else's organ inside of you. So I think that that speaks to, we still are discovering ways that we are connected with the natural world. Mm. And that's why I think stewardship of our public lands of nature in general is so valuable because we still are figuring out how we support one another and if we decimate forests if we decimate an entire species that could have been the cure to cancer that could have been the cure to alzheimer's like who are we to say what that could have done for example i think of that there's been so many plots to decimate the amazon forest Mm. which is one of these like incredibly biodiverse places in the in the world. Why on earth would we decimate it when it could hold all of the medicines would support us as a human species. I think going back to that
0: piece around drugs and the origination of drugs, most people don't understand that a lot of pharmacologics are based off of herbal plants and medicines Mm -hmm. that they can be traced back. You know, herbal medicine has been a practice for eons, keeping humans alive and safe and healthy. That, you know, if you start to tamper with that ecosystem, you're also tampering with deep medicine that has kept our species around for a very long time. And it is a delicate balance between moving forward in a progressive modern world and also trying to maintain cultural ancestral lineage ties and connection to the land and and I can see how in this modern day and age it is becoming more stickier to find what is that gray area and what is that line between creating things like deforestation that completely erodes and eradicates populations of plants, animals, and thereby, you know, smaller creatures, just even thinking about bugs in general. We've lost so many insect species over the past 20, 30 years at very alarming rates that it, it is really a Um, eye-opening concept for us to just take a deeper look at the practices in which we hold and and how that further impacts our connection with the earth and and how also too it impacts
1: our survivability on the planet as well. Yeah you know late stage capitalism doesn't exactly help this process like not at all (laughs) because it's very short-sighted and you know we were having this conversation earlier about indigenous land practices. Yeah I will say there is a long and storied history with native communities in the united states and across the world in terms of land management in the past this is my own view but the park service and other federal land managing agencies and the united states government eradicated entire communities from their homelands they had been there for tens of thousands of years in eradicating i mean they Strip them of their dignity, murdered them, and then put them on reservations, which is a awful part of our history. And we can't move forward until we acknowledge that that happened. These communities understood how to take care of the land mm. and how to keep these resources around. And we were talking about California fires mm-hmm. and how one big issue in the Western United States is fire management and forest fires and there's been this, you know, colonizer tendency to say like don't burn anything, fires are bad, it's not good for the ecosystem. Right. But native communities and I'm thinking of some specifically in northern California have always lived with fires and initiated fires because it did help the landscape. In California, there are certain tree species where their cones, like the pine cones, don't actually open unless they're heated until they reach an enti- they reach a certain temperature. Wow. Yeah, so you need f- so they have evolved for fire. Mm-hmm. And these native communities, they figured out, okay, you have to set the forest on fire at certain times of the year or if It's been a dry year. Maybe you don't want to set it on fire because then you have more fuels. Maybe you want to set it on fire during a wetter year, et cetera. And I haven't had these conversations with them, but these are the types of things that you have to think about in terms of forest fire management. But that's to say that these communities have evolved with the landscape and they understood what gifts the landscape can provide for them and what they can give back to the landscape too think especially as
0: individuals who, who family came here and is not of indigenous descent, you know, it, it's a very it's a topic that I think needs more voice and uplifting around specific indigenous voices because really their connection to the land, I mean even just the description of how certain like pine cones need to be heated in order to be open, their understanding of that is how does that then give back to certain species that then feed our bellies mm-hmm. that also to create and lend its hand in things like regenerative agriculture, which is really the practice of the land and um, ecosystems of the land taking and tilling and taking care of itself. So mm-hmm. it's its own self-servicing System, if you were to think of it that way, kind of like the human microbiome when it is optimized. Um, <laughs> just want to make that very clear that it's its own self-keeping system that always has, almost if we were to parallel with the US government, these checks and balances that maintain the stability of that inherent system. And so I'm curious, you know, from your experience specifically with water, was there any lessons that you have learned from water that that you'd like to share with the
1: audience? You're along for the ride. <laughs> <laughs> Figuratively and literally. I think the biggest lessons that have come from water come from my like experience whitewater rafting. I've been lucky enough to go on not one, but two rafting trips down the Colorado River through Grand Canyon National Park. The first was in January of 2019 and it was a 19 day trip with 15 people and I was rowing my own raft. So that was like 18 foot long boat, probably weighed about a ton. I actually have a different rating system. Grand Canyon is on a scale from one to 10. Class 10 rapid isn't necessarily a class five rapid elsewhere. Mm. It's just like its own internal rating system. It also depends on the flows and conditions and whatnot. I would say that the rapids are about class four, Okay. but the biggest rapid is called Lava Falls. And if you haven't uh, seen it before you should look at youtube for some videos of what it looks like but it's enormous when it comes to running rapids what you do is you first you scout the rapid so you pull your boat to the shore just above the rapid you walk down to the rapid you take a look at it and you look at the rapid and you f- try to figure out where you're going to go you say okay there's a rock right here there's a big wave right here i want to start left and work right etc so you you come up with a plan once you're in the rapid you have to hope that you did the best you could to prepare and things are gonna go wrong mm-hmm. they just do there's gonna be a rogue wave that Knocks you sideways, you could break an oar, and then all of a sudden, you're only rowing this one ton raft with one stick. All sorts of things can happen, yeah. And all you can do is stay calm in the moment and know that it's going to pass wow. and you're going to deal with it. And hopefully, you've done the, your homework and you've figured out your plan and you've been humble and you're like, This is my plan, here's an alternate. But I'm along for the ride. I had that experience when I rode Lava for the first time Mm -hmm. because I was so nervous. (laughs) I was so scared, understandably. It was huge. It was the biggest rapid I had ever seen. I was so nervous and I figured out my line for the rapid. We got back to the boat and I was like "Schwitzing." I was sweating so hard because I was like, this is going to be terrifying. As you're coming, especially with lava, you're coming over this lip and you can't see the line. You can't see the line anymore. Wow. You just kind of have to rely on what you had thought about previously. And then you're in the meat of it and you're just kind of holding on for too life. <laughs> I might have peed myself a little, but the joy of going through it and like, doing the work was absolutely worth it. During this trip, it was one of the biggest trips that I had done. And I was definitely nervous rowing my own boat through all of these rapids. And you know, you're carrying like everybody's like sleeping bags and food for an entire week. Like you don't want to like flip and lose all of your gear. It's it's kind of a big deal. Capsizing is out of the question. Exactly. It happens, but you want to avoid it. I came up on one of our first big rapids and I was kind of just looking for like a sign that it was going to be okay and this blue heron like landed on the shore near us and was just staring at the rapid and I was like that seems that feels like a good sign I ended up seeing a blue heron at every rapid that we would scout and look at and I was like wow this is such a good omen and then the day came when we were going to run lava falls and I didn't see a blue heron I was terrified Oh my god, it's not here. Like what am I going to do? Which also like, you know, fed into that anxiety of, you know, how am I going to get through this? When we get to Tequila Beach, which is the beach right <laughs> after Lava Falls, everybody gets some bottles out and you celebrate getting through the hardest part of the Grand Canyon. One of my friends asked me, you know, how was your run through Lava Falls, and I throw my hands up in the air as if to say as if I'm about to say, "Oh, it was like it was terrible" or like I I didn't make the right line, and I throw my hands up in the air and a bird poops on my arm. <gasps>
0: Star, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So there was like this beautiful, deep, like spirit guide through this bird that was just there reassuring you that you're going to make it through this and almost pulling back and and kind of like in this human experience where it's like, we can only be reassured up into a point to where we then have to leave our comfort zone and just fully rely on trust and faith that we're going to make it through and things are going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And then there's also sometimes once we get through that, that end point, that finish line, there is this validation, Validation. And and that mm-hmm. was that was the poop
1: yeah that was the poop exactly It's <laughs> <laughs> how
0: incredible and it sounds like from that experience you really learned that through through water that you have to kind of hold this faith believe and trust and know that things will work out but also you, know, you can plan up to a point but mm-hmm. it's kind of like that saying you plan and God laughs yeah and it's because there's so much unpredictability in this lifetime and this human experience that we can only plan up until a point to where we kind of have to, and I have this tattoo on my left arm and it says, let go and let God. And it was a quote from my Nana who had always said this, especially in times of challenge, but really just allowing yourself to feel unified with this overall experience of existing in this life and in allowing it to just unfold the way it's supposed to.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Is It's still important for you to do the work It's still important for you to try and understanding that the result may not be exactly what you anticipated, but I think at least for myself, feel that things work out how they're supposed to. And you may not always see it in the moment. And, you know, I do want to be cautious of like thinking about trauma and loss. And this is a conversation that I've had with my best friend who's a therapist. I don't ever think that that's like a plan that right. for that to happen. I mean, you know this and I can share it with your listeners is that I lost my mom to breast cancer when I was five and that was obviously quite traumatic. And then dad ended up getting remarried and I gained a stepmother and a stepsister. I think of, I thought of my stepmother. She was my mom. She was the one who raised me. And she passed away when I was 25 from early onset Alzheimer's. I don't think either of those were the plan. Those were the rogue waves that set me off course. And the way that I've come to think about those events is like, those events don't necessarily have meaning, but I have had to add meaning to them. Mm. I have had to move forward despite those
0: Yeah, most certainly. And like find the lesson and the deeper understanding of it all in terms of how do you grow from such a a challenging experience that really just turns your world upside down and and then moving forward in a way with dignity and grace that really helps aid in your continued experience but also too in honoring their legacies and, and really representing them in, in your life. Mm-hmm. I have one last question to wrap up today's episode with. I'm curious, especially as someone who as an as an involved in environmental science as you are, are there any tips that you would like to share with the audience on how to become stewards of the land and also to like can you expand
1: upon what stewardship means to you? Those are great questions. Stewardship first starts with your backyard like with your ecosystem. Mm. And so many people nowadays do live in these urban areas and it's really easy to get disconnected with your landscape. One thing that I think is really important to acknowledge when it comes to land and stewardship is knowing which tribal and native communities um, lived in your ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a a website that shows different regions where different native communities lived in, in at least North America. Once we're able to acknowledge that, I think that one of the next steps is recognizing what is normal for your eco-region. So in... This part of Wyoming, we live in this sagebrush community. We saw moose, we saw elk, mm-hmm. we have wolves and coyotes in this area, we have bears, both black and grizzlies. In this part of the world, we try to maintain the native vegetation in this area. Mm-hmm. There was a long history of cultivation in this area, and there's been a lot of restoration back towards this sagebrush community. which is what all the organisms here thrive on. But when we're thinking about, you know, an urban environment, we still want to think about, okay, what is going to be natural for this ecosystem? So if you live, say, in like the San Francisco Bay Area, it might be more like drought-tolerant species that mm. would be relevant to your backyard. One thing that I like to recommend to people is like look at your local Um, native nurseries, native plant and species communities. Plant in in your garden, if you have the opportunity for it, plant species that are beneficial to the local uh, flora and fauna. And that can tend to be like drought tolerant species for that area versus if you live like in seattle for example you can plant things that are more water tolerant mm. or shade tolerant or um you know cold tolerant start with your backyard There's then this i kind of feel like i always have this de- sort of debate with people Is like there tends to be this identity with like recycling like oh my god recycling <laughs> is the thing that i'm going to do to save this earth and like yeah recycling is great and I recommend that everybody does it. There are like a lot of systems in place that are causing far more issues than you not recycling your cereal box. Mm. Have some grace for yourself if you like forget to recycle something. Yes, we can contribute to being more sustainable, By doing that or by composting. Or opting for paper bags over plastic, reducing plastic use, things like that. Exactly. Or like buying in bulk or, you know, buying things from the bulk section like seeds and nuts, et cetera, et Mm -hmm. cetera. Recognizing that like oil companies contribute so much to carbon emissions. And private Um, jets. Yeah. Or
0: calling out you, Taylor Swift. Yeah. Like don't take
1: a private jet if you have one. (laughs) (laughs) Very simple things. Yeah. You can start... With your backyard, like recognize that, yes, you can do a lot to be more sustainable in terms of recycling or doing composting, but having grace with yourself because there are these systems in place that are part of capitalism that make it really hard to be stewards right now. One thing you can do if you want to go this way is, you know, reaching out to your representatives about renewable resources. I opt for solar and wind where possible. Every type of energy generation is going to have its benefits Mm -hmm. and its minuses as well. I've been debating about hydropower because when you put a block in a river, it's like putting a block in an artery. Ooh. Yeah, you can imagine it's really disruptive to that river ecosystem, and dams don't actually have much of a lifespan because they fill with sediment. Because sediment usually flows downstream, so most dams in the United States have about a 50-year lifespan.
0: Right. And also, if you think about the construction of that dam and the materials used, and all of that, and and that also contributing to you know more toxicants in water sources and soil sources, and also in our air.
1: Exactly. But the benefit of hydropower is. That that it's not emitting carbon and you can turn it on and off whenever you want. I understand what the argument for hydropower is, but for me as a hydrologist, I argue against it because of the impact that it has on the ecosystem. Coming back to being a steward is you, if you want to go to the step of reaching out to representatives and ensuring that your state is moving towards more renewable resources, that's a great option. Also, if you can, think about getting solar panels for your roof. That's a really good way to get off of the grid, your energy grid, and give back to your energy grid as mm-hmm. well. And I understand that that's not an option for everybody. Not all of us are homeowners or are in a place where solar energy is going to make sense. Mm-hmm. Trying to reduce your carbon output is beneficial in the long run.
0: Absolutely. And I I know that I said that that was my last question to you, but I'm curious in your opinion, especially on this carbon output piece, because I think there's been a lot of debate around, you know, dietary practices and carbon mm. footprint. Do you feel like that is as significant as phoning your representative, taking note of the native plant species in your backyard, really honing in on your community, you know, possibly becoming um, a part of a slow food garden or things like that. If that is as significant as some of these other actionable steps that might feel more tangible for people.
1: Yeah, it, it reminds me of one of my really good friends who has been vegan for like 10 years mm-hmm. and she became vegan. We and have had several conversations about this is like that is helpful, but that also isn't for everybody. Like, I know that I need a lot of iron um, Mm -hmm. because I'm super active. Like, sometimes I'm like, I just need a burger, you know? Absolutely. And it's like, okay, if my body's craving that, I need to respond to that. And there's a lot of nuance with this question because say you are vegan and you end up buying mangoes that are organic, that have traveled from Mexico, that has a larger carbon footprint than me getting a hamburger from, like, a local rancher. It really, it depends on, like, when we're talking about food, at least. Yeah. It's a really nuanced discussion, um, and it really... I think it really depends on, like, what's going to be best for your body and what makes sense for your lifestyle. And then in terms of how important is that compared to reaching out to your representatives, I say wherever you start is valuable Hmm. you know if it if it feels right to you to call to your representatives then go ahead and do that if it feels right for you to be like hey i'm gonna like start making my own tofu instead start there you know when we're thinking about being stewards you have to look at it at it in bite-sized chunks yeah in some cases writing to your representatives will have a really quick impact will have a fast impact or a a deep impact but sometimes it takes a really long time for these things to move forward at the same time like if you can start with like a little bit then yeah go ahead and start with making changes with where you source your food Mm,
0: I love that. And I love that you brought up the aspect of nuance because I think there's been a larger conversation around regenerative agriculture specifically and, you know, how there is nuance, even in the mango example that you provided in terms of sourcing our food, but also to how these animals actually contribute to lower carbon footprint based upon their just own existence and natural movement and Corporation with the land and, and how that is also really relevant and impactful, especially looking at topsoil today, where we are at the point where topsoil is incredibly nutrient depleted, which is why a lot of people, especially in the United States, experience things like magnesium deficiency, because we are not um, providing the land with the proper nutrient density and things that might come from manure or, you know, from a hoofs of a bison or a cattle or whatever animal from, you know, the chicken scratching up the soil and moving pollen around, things of that nature, but then also too on the other regard of, you know, meeting yourself where you're at and, and seeing, you know, it, Can I go for a meatless Monday? Does that feel like it's something that's supportive in my life, but also too with my relationship with food and with my body and my relationship with the land? And I love that you bring it back to whatever feels most comfortable, but starting in small chunks that Mm -hmm. really work for you and your lifestyle in order to just give back to this beautiful earth that we all call home, that we all have the desire to take care of. And at points feels very overwhelming to take care of, but remember that, you know, every small bit of what we do matters, but also too, taking a step back from that and remembering that we are only individuals and mm-hmm. there are larger corporations and and powers that be that do have a substantial impact in Absolutely. the quality and the health of our planet mm-hmm. and so not only voting with our voice um, you know sharing our opinions and speaking with representatives of our counties of our state but even voting with our dollars you know you brought up the beautiful point of of shopping locally and sometimes that is not financially feasible for everyone however you know if you can get into touch with you know farmers and and individuals who are ranch hands and ranchers there can be certain community aspects that are created. I know specifically, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to travel to the islands of Hawaii a lot of the past few years and there's such a beautiful community that's interconnected of I grow mangoes, you grow avocados, let's mm-hmm. switch. You yep. have you have eggs, I have cheese, let's switch. You know, there's there's various ways that we can go back to bartering. Bartering, yes, and and also being reliant upon community and each other rather than larger corporations that have such a monopoly of not only seeds, but influence on the land and how that land responds, that we can even take our power back in very small ways by, like I said, being a part of a slow food garden or, you know, just growing food in our backyard or even herbs. I hope that you have not only felt enlightened by this podcast, but also to feel like you have a deeper understanding and knowledge of the Science of water, the science of our planet, and also how deeply connected it is to our human existence. And I just want to say a huge thank you to Joni for taking the time to share all of her information and knowledge with us today, and also too for for being here. Is there any specific place that we can find you or that we can learn more from
1: you? You can follow me on Instagram if you want to. (laughs) My handle is baloneybutt. um, (laughs) B a l o n i Ibutt. Awesome. Um, and I, I share, a, you know, a smattering of different things, but every once in a while, I do post about um, either my adventures or things that I'm seeing in the news and how it relates to being a steward of our earth.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. And I will say, she has the funniest videos on TikTok about <laughs> glacier jerkins, um, which are small little pickles, and she dresses these pickles up in various ways.
1: My and my TikTok handle is Call Her River. Mm, such a beautiful name well thank you so much again Joni yes of course it was a pleasure being on your podcast
0: thank you for joining us for an episode of the wildly rooted podcast be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed today's episode I'd also love to hear from you so leave a review if you wish and I can't wait to catch up with you in the next episode bye